Hello, welcome to the Water Justice Podcast. Join us as we share stories from various voices responding to water and social justice challenges across the globe. Your hosts, Tim Whiffen and myself, Kat Taylor, acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia on which this podcast has been produced, and we honour their connections to land, sea and community. This episode of the Water Justice Podcast is a collection of stories, a kind of recounting of the flooding that much of regional Australia received throughout the Murray-Darling Basin across 2022 and into 2023. New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia experienced severe flooding in late spring months in a La Nina event. The statistics show incredible impacts on several industries, including tourism, transport, mining, and of course agriculture, but these figures don't capture the real human impact. I have brought five guests together from different areas along the flooded regions to give you some insight into the different experiences of this tragedy. The recounting of events that you're about to hear are from regional areas along the River Murray. The River Murray is Australia's longest river, located in the southeast of the country and is critical to many country towns, as well as being the major supply of water to South Australia and Canberra, Australia's capital city. Extreme weather and flooding throughout the year of 2022 hit the entire Murray-Darling Basin, which spans five states and territories, but reached a climax of downstream effects over the summer when damage costs were estimated to be $5 billion wiped from the national economy. To represent the wide effects of flooding, I have three guests from country Victoria who received flooding from the River Loddon, which runs south of the River Murray. Agri-industry advocate, grain and livestock farmer Prue Milgate and regenerative agricultural sheep farmer Bill Twig join us from the Serpentine area, east of the River Loddon. Paul Hoare, a First Nations Cultural Heritage Museum caretaker and Lakeside Town local, joins us from Bort, west of the River Loddon. And to represent some experiences in New South Wales, Dallas Tout joins us as the mayor of Wagga Wagga, a town that received flooding from the River Murrumbidgee, a tributary to the River Murray flowing from the north. To represent a community downstream is Simone Bailey, mayor of the Mid-Murray Council, an area in South Australia that hosts a long stretch of the River Murray with many riverside towns. My name's Paul Hoare and I've lived in the Port area, which is in the Loddon Shire, for 76 years. Simone Bailey, Mayor of Mid-Murray Council. Dallas Town, Mayor of the City of Wagga Wagga. Prue Milgate, a fifth generation farmer and landowner in the Northern Victoria region, based at Serpentine on the Loddon River. William Edward Twig, my full name. And I live at Bears Lagoon, which is a small town which was quite a few homes in it when I went to school but there's virtually nothing left now. Like I said I'm a, I'm a farmer, I've been farming all my life and I'm the third generation on this farm so I've learned a, a lot from my grandfather. He was the one that really started the farm. It's not organic but it's we like to call it a natural farming system. We don't use much much chemicals, we rely on nature for problems, we have problems that the nature overcomes. It's a great life, I live here with my family and uh, it's been great. I've thoroughly enjoyed my life. If I've got to go, I'm, I'm satisfied with, with what I've done in, in my sh- short period on this farm. It has improved from 
when my grandfather came and we've in, improved our acreages and improved the, the soils, which is, gives me great satisfaction when I look across the paddock and see some good pasture, some trees growing and something that, I, that I've done. To give you some idea of what the impacts of these floods are in tangible ways, our guests have varied stories to tell. So it's been very interesting out here. We're now in recovery mode. All of our crops went underwater, so we're still harvesting. Harvesters a month delayed, so we had Christmas Day off and that's about it. And I think most people around us are the same. The whole area has been impacted. We were looking at a great season and it looked the best season we've ever had here. But that was owing to a lot of rain we had. So it just kept on raining and uh, everybody put a lot of inputs into their systems expecting at high yields and then the flood came along, which is not natural, but it ha- happens when there's a high rainfall. So most p- people have, have lost a lot of uh, production. We would have lost at least half our production with flood- the floods. We made our sheep farmers. Uh, the sheep have battled through the, the rain and then the flood on top of it. And uh, everybody's been affected, but that's, that's farming. That's farming. We all accept it. But it, it was very hard to take when we had such a good year. We, we had all spent in our mind what we were going to do with the, the profit of the farming. But uh, it, it's been taken away. But that's farming. That's, what we, that's the occupation we've got. And that's the occupation we took on when we left school. So we were, had to be prepared for very, some disappointments. But we have some good times. This year in Port Eagnote there's been so much crop loss. I don't think the bought grain terminals received so much grain because we lost in the floodplain, but we had such good rains on the higher ground. They're the best crops they've ever had. I know a few people have lost all their crops, which is a tragedy, but the trouble is if, if you do cropping, you've got nothing left. Unfortunately, time will tell. The true depth of what is the impact is unknown still at this stage. The Mid-Murray Council area, still unknown, but to at this stage we have significant losses um, in council infrastructure. So we've got roads, we've got residents who have had their homes impacted, residents that have had power and sewer impacted, farmers have had infrastructure as well as land and irrigation impacted and then you've got your businesses who have you know lost trade over the summer time where our towns are generally tourist towns so they're the busiest time of the year and after COVID for two years we were just looking forward to getting everything back to normal and having a normal summer yeah plenty of impacts. This year particularly has been a number of potential flood events, flood events but potential uh, overtopping of levees so We've had two or three instances this year, which is the most we've had in a number of years. So there's a lot of emotional impacts because of the preparation to potentially move and isolate and exit and then not, and then potentially do it again and then not. This flood was very severe, probably as big as 2011. And of course, there's been a lot of crop lost. And sometimes you've got to analyse why it was lost. And that's a, a real concern. But I'll, I'll go into more detail about what we should be doing if we're going to continue having climate change and bigger floods because 2011 was very large, 2016 was quite large and now 2022 is extra large. So the last, the biggest three floods have been in the last part of my life. We've got two houses either side of my parents where they have had water through their house deeper than it's ever been on record. And my parents themselves had water 
looking out their bathroom window. And their house was placed there during the 1900s when the Lanarkery Weir, which is on the Loddon River, burst. And it was actually pulled there by horse and dray because it was the only dry spot. They were actually moving it up to Jarklin, and that's where they got to, and that was the only spot that was high ground. And it's never seen water, and it was outside their bathroom window. And we'd actually evacuated to there from our place because we live right on the banks of the Loddon. Um, we got, we're pretty much 500 metres from the river. I can see it out my window right now. We, at one point, had to sit around at the table. I've got three little boys, um, my husband and I do, and we sat down with my parents and had to make a plan on, okay, water's still rising, it's now outside the window. This is the highest point around here, where to next? Just as, you know, farmers, you don't, you, we know that our farm goes 98% underwater, the only dry percentage of the houses and sheds. Well, it went through every shed except the machinery shed and the wool shed because it's a metre and a half off the ground, and it didn't go through the house. And... We were some of the lucky ones. A lot of the farmers around us have had water through their houses, through their sheds, through their vehicles. The media loves to blow up houses that have, that have been washed away and, and things like that, but it's the overall whole floodplain that's been, been affected. And they, don't know, they, they wouldn't know that I've lost my half my income. And it's, it's, it's not only this year, it, it's going to take three years at least to get back to where I was. So uh, it's important that they, they know that we've lost income as well. They, they see the houses have been floated away and, and that it's devastating for those type of people. But the whole floodplain, the lot and floodplains, but, and all the little businesses, I was talking the business in Bridgewater, you know, he was looking for a great year, he was ordering things in and the... Farmers just stop spending when they're not making money and it affects the whole economy of, of Australia more so than, than the floods that we see in the, in the floodplains with houses. I feel really sorry for them. But it's the production of the whole country is going to be affected or the whole area is affected. Water, while nourishing and peaceful in most forms, has immense power and can bring about great destruction. The grief experienced by people directly affected by the floods is not just for lost property or income, but arises through immense pressure, anxiety and real potential for loss of life. With disparate populations, it can be easy to become isolated in regional areas, and while emergency services were deployed to help people, the danger of these floods was not totally mitigated. We've recently seen one of our roads inundated and it happened really, really fast and the photos that I'm seeing a day later is the road's totally gone, washed away. There's many, many people driving through road close signs and, you know, thinking that that water isn't very low and once you put that impact of that car on that, that road can wash away. So just be careful. If a road close sign's there, please take notice of it. We've also had a few people that decided to go out on an inflatable mattress. You know, the river is very fast-flowing at the moment, so they needed to be saved by the SES, and at the moment the SES have more important jobs to do in blocking off roads and making sure everyone's safe. 
there was a rescue at Blanchetown in our council area, so some people went to look at their shack, and that's fair enough. They, you know, there's looters and things like that we're hearing, so they all just want to make sure their shack is safe. And unfortunately, because of the current, their their boat capsized, and they also they had to cling to trees until they were saved. There was also a little town called Walker Flat that at 7pm at night time they were totally evacuated because their little town became inundated the whole way around so they turned into an island. When we talk about the danger of these floods, first of all, when white men came here, floods were very beneficial to the land. It didn't worry anyone. If you look at all the Aboriginal cooking mounds, they're all just above the height of the peak of the high floods along the riverbanks and, and around Lunettes and things like that. The only cooking mounds I see that get flooded uh, usually in the bottom of lakes as they went dry or wetlands we call them the Aborigines had cooking mounds just above when the lakes had 300 millimetres of water and they must have had huge people flock to the areas to catch the fish and so all there's rows of cooking mounds around the edge of the lake when the the water's about 300 millimetres high because you've got to realise all our wetlands through here used to be red gum forests and they were genuine swamps through the northern Victoria and it's just that when the squatters came, they raised the outlet to the lakes and increased the inflows because they wanted permanent water and drowned. Just about every wetland, every tree was drowned. And, and another thing on the floodplain, and I've noticed this when I was young, it was heavily run with sheep. And when a flood went over it, because the plants had adapted to floods, likes of lignum and dansonias and stipers and all the other herbs, when the flood went off, they just thrived and got into it. Most farmers didn't care about floods, so they could run a lot of sheep. I know farmers down there that ran thousands of sheep, and some still do. And then, of course, when sheep went out of fashion a bit, and they cleared the land or cleared all the lignum and grew tomatoes and crops and all this. When you get a flood, there's nothing left. Well, I was more affected with this flood than the 2011 floods because that's the first one we had in 2011. We learned a lot a lot from 2011. But this one, it, it come when our ewes were, had little lambs on them, and I was very, I was stressed that the sheep had to be moved around. It kept on raining. The lambs were, weren't dying, but they were getting stressed, and I got stressed. And I did an unbelievable thing over stress. In the middle of the night, I woke up, and I got on the track, and I thought, I better go and move those sheep. And there was two foot of water all over the property. I got in the tractor. I must have been sleepwalking. I drove down the road, drove across the paddocks looking for these sheep. And there was no way that I could see sheep. It was pitch dark. And I could have the lights. And then I, I come back home and I could have easily driven into a dam, into the side cuts and could have drowned. There's, there's, why? It boggles my mind what I did. And I suppose other people did stupid things the same as that. I, I don't know why. I mean, it was that. It was I couldn't have done any good to the sheep. I couldn't find them. So it was brought about by stress. And I've been stressed. I'm coming out of it now. But while the flood was on and while it was raining, I was very stressed. I hardly slept at all at nights, thinking impossible things. So it was, and I, I suspect I was only one of many. For the farmers around here, it was. We knew we were in trouble. We knew that the river was going to come out and we were made aware that we had 145,000 megs coming down the river, which is the capacity of Cancurran, which is our biggest reservoir. So there has been discussion amongst people along the river saying that Golden Murray Water should have prevented the water coming, but 
you can't stop an entire reservoir from unloading on you on top of it already being full. Unfortunately for farmers, we just had to move our stock to high ground, which when our farm goes 98% under, there isn't any dry ground. We had one mob up around the house on our silo pad and the rest were standing in ankle deep water, but we checked them regularly via tractor. And I know most neighbours, we've had neighbours to one side of us with it through their house a metre deep when in 2011, which was the biggest on record, it only went through it actually suctioned up through the air vents so it only came through slightly i've definitely had many many comments from community you know what would happen if they let us have water sooner and things like that unfortunately the flows are just unknown you know this water is going in different places than anyone could predict and that's why you know at the start they were predicting say 110 gigalitres a day and now we're up to predictions of 200 gigalitres per day which is the whole of adelaide uses 200 gigalitres in the whole year so we're getting that in a daily flow which is just unbelievable and another concern i have is i went past a property and i reckon there was 200 chemical drums floated up against the fence and a flood bank and you think oh what harm is that doing to the water and uh, you know perhaps there should be better storage of some of these things so it can't happen the urban people are so unrelated to what's happening on farms now it's they think that we own a, a million dollars in property, which we do, but we've got to have a million dollars to make a small income. Uh, and they don't, they see, well, see, farmers are very rich, but we're unrich in assets, but not rich in, in income. And, and I'm always worried about what the urban people, they say, oh, you're a multi-millionaire, but we're not. We need that, that money to, uh, if we sell out, well, the farm's gone. Because a couple of the instances were only a couple of weeks apart, mm. so they had to prepare to isolate, and then the hyper level went down, and then a couple of weeks later, the same thing happened, so it was up again. You see it more in the elderly and isolated, but I then saw the beautiful part of our community. I was at one public meeting, and there was a, a lady there who was obviously in distress, um, an elderly lady, and the neighbours walked over to her because I was standing nearby, and I said, look, don't worry, it's okay. We've got ours nearly all packed. We're just about done. We'll come over to your place, do yours. So that's the sort of support that you see happening. And as much as you can, the community itself mitigates it. There are obviously support services and counselling services. There's services in place, which are fantastic, but you can't also beat that wrapping around of community on community. You're listening to the Water Justice Podcast. To stay up to date with the program and other content from the Water Justice Hub, you can follow the Hub on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook at Water Justice Hub. If you live in a metro area or in a place that has low risk of a destructive water event, it might seem like a foreign concept to deal with the wake of these floods. But it was not too long ago this area of Australia had another period of significant flooding. People acknowledge these kinds of events happen, and many other floods in this area have been retold through folklore. But the frequency of these devastating events is something that has shocked many.
But I think the thing that's come out of this year particularly, we had some huge floods in 2010 and 2012, but this year particularly with the number of flood events and potential overtopping of levees in our North Wagga area and impacts on other people in other areas of Wagga that have had been impacted is the resilience of the community. And what I've found is if we get the right balance of communication between the SES in New South Wales, which is the lead agency, and council and other stakeholders, if we get the right balance of communication between them and community and it's timely and it's regular and people are aware of what's happening and what may potentially happen, that worked because people were having, we were having a public meeting every 24 hours. We had two or three nights in a row when we had one face-to-face and that was webcast as well by SES and that way residents knew every 24 hours what was happening what the flood was probably going to hit whether that would overtop whether it wouldn't overtop so they were given as much time physical time as possible to prepare to isolate which meant packing things up but not actually leaving and in the end we only had to exit once the other one or two times that they didn't so i think it's that communication i think if there's that communication and preparation then the community feels more comfortable and they're not happy but because they're in that situation, but they feel more comfortable that everyone's on top of what's happening, there's support there for them, whether that's from SES or police or whoever. And that then proves the resilience of our communities around here that live on the floodplain. We know they can happen, but they're resilient and they can live with it and manage, they can manage it. Obviously there'll be still impacts now some people it emotionally hits more more than others and I'm not saying they're completely okay now but on the whole it worked really well and I think that's the big takeout. We live on a floodplain and that's why the soil's so fertile. I mean floods and the silt and from the high country comes down and it's been happening for millions of years and it'll keep on happening. So I, I've got nothing that I can ch- change the roads and levee banks and that changes the, the flow of the flood no floods the same but I, I, I think we live in a floodplain and we just accept what, what comes there's nothing I can change it's, it's too enormous for the humans We haven't had a flood like this for 50 years so many people didn't have an action plan and when it was discussed about three or four months ago we still, you know, there were some people that still didn't believe we were going to get the amount of water that we were going to get. Now I believe, you know, most people are prepared and have acted so it's about for future, you know, be prepared, have an action plan. Is it worth, you know, sandbagging for days or is it just worth putting all that time to recovery? So we're going to be learning from this. We still don't know what, you know, what recovery looks like for us. So they'll definitely for council, we'll be, you know, putting big plans in place so that we're ready, more ready for next time. I, I honestly believe with climate change, the flood pattern is changing. Because out of my 76 years, I can see that as clear as a bell. And because when I was a kid, there was so much lignum country and it flooded so much country. The floods weren't as severe. And if you put two banks, the water is much higher between those two banks as over a whole lot of land that's only falls 20 centimetres a kilometre. So you see this, the two years, 2011 and this year, it's, it's one in a hundred years. So we had the 2011 floods and we thought, well, that's, we won't have another one for a hundred years. But we've had two in, in 10 years but as for preparing for floods, it's not much you can do. You can, 
sand bank around your house or put levee banks around your house, which are not much you can do for the farm. It's like building sandcastles on the on the beach. When the tide comes in, the sandcastle goes. So it's the same. It's farming. We we accept it. It's it's not as devastating as as bushfires. Fires take take. Uh, Lives, but very rarely, especially in this floodplain, in the Loddon floodplains, I don't think there's any life being lost. But the worst part about a flood, it leaves a damn mess. So it's there's sticks and fences washed away, things like that. At least a bushfire makes it clean and sweep. You can yeah. you can start again. When I was a kid, we had just what I call normal floods. Almost every second year, that happened right up until about 1996. And when I went to school, we used to enjoy floods because it often we could have a spell from school because school was a bit flooded. And they were just normal floods. But now, after 96, the floods just cut off. And I don't know. I think it's because all, all water is then sent to irrigation. And when water became valuable, then every bit of water got used. So every bit got used out of the reservoirs. So we went from 1996 to 2011 without a flood. And it's unheard of. And then all of a sudden... We don't get any little floods, we just get ten beginning major floods. And so I'm quite a strong believer in climate change or those things because I see such a change. You know, we live on a floodplain. I come from Gundagai, which is further upstream on the same river. And when you live on a floodplain, you accept some of the things that come with living on a floodplain. You know, so you have to be adaptable if floods are going to come, whether you have levees or you don't, different places do, different places don't. So you have to be aware that you have to be adaptive with, I suppose, Mother Nature and floods and what that brings. We were thinking it was going to be a one in a hundred years, which 2011 was, but it proved that, that there could be another one tomorrow. But it's proved that nature repeats itself over and over again. It's been really interesting uh, experiencing the floods of 2022 compared to, I guess, what we thought was the one in 100 year floods in 2010 and 2011. Uh, So back then we had three floods in a six month period. And I lived here on the river and I remember thinking we are never, my dad and my grandfather at the time were saying, never seen anything like it, you'll never see it again. We've just experienced another one in 100 year flood. This time it was, the flow of the water was greatly impacted by the crops. And we've had three very good years in the Loddon Valley. Uh, Three years of very good rainfall crops. People have been not holding back. Uh, The only reason people didn't feed them as good as last year this year was purely the price of urea. It was phenomenally priced. And so the crops were still ginormous and that has impacted the flow of the water. So... Anywhere where there were big crops, we've seen water change direction. Oh, it was a huge drought. Never seen anything like it when I was a child. You know, the river, Loddon River actually went, ran dry, even though when you read the early writings in 1840s, the river probably ran dry most years. It's just that we've kept it going with environmental flows and irrigation flows. But in the millennium drought, it actually went dry. When tragedy strikes, it is human nature to want to make sense of the chaos. And yet, the story being told here is not the fault of any individual. It is not something that can be prevented entirely, and dwelling on it is sure to cause further misery. But just because these floods aren't totally preventable, does not mean that we cannot learn from them, and change how we respond to nature's will. 
Perhaps what has been most outstanding to me throughout these stories is people's tenacity in the face of, from where I stand at least, unfathomable hardship. Yeah, look, there's a lot of things to learn. First of all, I've noticed, and it's happened in many areas, a farm gets sold and somebody buys it and they've never seen a flood. And the tr- when you buy a Briggs and Stratton motor, you get an instruction book with uh, in 13 languages how, how to operate it. And when you buy a farm, there's no instruction book on what floods do and things like this. And, and then you see people go and laser creeks and paddocks. And nowadays, getting a permit doesn't really matter and no, one is, no one's going to prosecute you. And so I found that, that one of the biggest hassles out of this flood was the change of course of floods and things like that. And even Golden Murray Water with the modernisation of uh, removed channel banks and things like that. And that's even changed, of course. They probably didn't intend to. It's just happened. And it's no sense getting angry. We've just got to sort out what went wrong and solve these problems. And another thing I think is very important after floods, and there's a few of us get together, and you should write down everything that should be done when the next flood happens and what should be done and what banks should be improved because I've noticed in the 2011 flood a few houses got flooded and the ones that made an effort to put a bank around their houses never got flooded this time and the ones that made uh, didn't get around to it got flooded again but I noticed another thing after 2011 flood I think our shire lost about 2,000 kilometres of fencing which is a lot of fencing because the floods went through in January of course they'd all finished harvesting so it's a lot of stubble and the interesting thing is the ones that had a bit of lignum near their fences never lost their fences because lignum was designed to collect the debris evenly across the floodplain. And so where there was no lignum, the straw just went straight to the fence and washed it out. We should work with nature and not fight it. Perhaps some countries should never be cropped. But what the trouble is, in those beautiful, heavy, black floodplain soils, they grow the best tomatoes and the best corn. Yeah, so perhaps we should make our floodways just a bit wider, you know, not to be so greedy and, and be able to harvest red gums or something in them for storing carbon. And, and I think that's a, a bit of a, a win-win situation. The trouble is, in the past, farmers haven't worked together where flood banks go. And so therefore, one farmer might see it differently to his friend below. And so therefore, it should be designed by engineers where flood banks and things should go so they flow more freely and things like that. We're learning so you know to be able to have these plans ready for next time most people that were involved in the flood 50 years ago aren't here now you know can't really tell us but also the challenges of not knowing you know which way the water's going to go and when it's going to rain again and things like that so I've just felt heartwarmed by seeing the communities rally together the resilience of the communities and it just reminds me of why I live in the country you know live in such a regional area because somebody puts a call out and everyone's there the next day to help so just knowing that everyone's there is really great for me. You know, I could sit, sit here and wax lyrical about doing different levies or different management or different sort of water height readings so that we could get more information. But the problem with all of that is, and it's an old saying I heard when I was young, and I used to think, well, that's a funny saying. Why do they say that? And now I know why they say it. This is in floods. They used to say, you can't predict this. Every flood is different. Every flood is different. I'm thinking, what do you mean? (laughs) 
And it is, every flood we've had since I've been here is completely different. It'll come up at different heights, it'll, it'll come different ways, it'll come up faster, it'll go down slower. It impacts different things in different ways. So it's hard to pick a Nirvana on what I would change and what I would try and fix because if you try and fix one type of flood or you may not be fixing for another different one because every flood or fire is different depending on the weather, depending on the wind of the fire, depending on the, the water discharge from the dams. So I, I suppose I don't really have a thing, you know, if I suppose in my Nirvana, if you gave me carte blanche for anything, it would be even more technology for communities. And it's getting that way now with apps and stuff, where's the you know, fire near me and, and the floods. If there was even more ability to notify residents in a timely fashion, we're still in the old-fashioned way, there's nothing wrong with the old-fashioned way, door-knocking and stuff, for those who don't have the technology. But the bigger rollout of technology that there is that gives prior warnings or gives that communication and keeps that communication up to date, that can't hurt. So I think if I had a Nirvana, it would be to get messages out and communications out if it, in an even more timely manner to more in the community. That would that would help. Well, you've got to be positive about it and, and move forward. It's no good being negative. And the, most farmers aren't negative about floods. They just accept it and, it's, and the subsoil moisture will be increased and we'll keep on going. I hope that you have gained something from these stories. They are but a few of the many perspectives and experiences of the floods Australia has had recently, and there is plenty more to talk about with this topic. There are links to find out more about our guests in the episode description. They each have such a varied background, and we are so pleased to be able to bring them to your attention. I'd like to thank all our guests for being open to sharing their experience with us. Hello, Tim. No problems. Thank you. No worries. Thanks for having me. That's okay. I'm not sure if I tend to waffle on when it gets into the water conversation. That's right. I hope it's some benefit to someone. That's all I worry about. Thank you for being part of the conversation on this episode of the Water Justice Podcast. If the ideas of this podcast inspire you, please subscribe and consider sharing. With your help, we can foreground water justice as an urgent policy issue. This podcast is executive produced by Quinton Grafton, the convener of the Water Justice Hub at the Crawford School of Public Policy, the Australian National University. The podcast is a platform for truth-telling and justice for all in relation to water. It's hosted by me, Kat Taylor, and Tim Whiffen, and is produced by Tim Whiffen of Whimsy Productions. Thank you to the guests for making this possible.